Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right, good morning, everyone. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church. It's always a joy and an honor to open up God's Word and to be able to worship with you guys. Um, how are we doing this morning? Are we all right? Good? Excellent. Thank you, Bryce. <laughs> um, if you haven't been here uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, we have been walking through our summer series entitled Misconceptions. And what we've done with this topic or sermon series is take, uh, we've took ideas from the Christian life that if not looked at through the lens of Scripture, uh, we can have misconceptions about. We can have ideas or thoughts in which this is how it's supposed to work. Um, and then when we don't take these ideas and really everything in our life and put it through the lens of Scripture, we get a little off, right? Um, at best, it's a little bit iffy when it comes to our biblical doctrine. Like you guys may have heard this phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm going to show you that that is, or I'm going to tell you that that's not anywhere in Scripture. But it sounds biblical, right? And then if we let our ideas go without bringing them through the lens of Scripture, we can go on full heresy, like this idea from a couple thousand years ago. When Jesus descended to earth and became a man, he was not fully God because he emptied himself from his deity as he walked the earth. We know now, through the Council of Nicaea, that that is a heretical doctrine not preached or not shown in Scripture. And so when we don't look at any and every idea through the lens of the Word of God, we can become very, very off in our thinking. And so we thought, Dwayne and I, hey, we should, through the summer, take some ideas that we find in the Christian life throughout this church, throughout people that we've talked to, and, and take them to the Word of God. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We are trying to answer the question, and this age-old question that I'm sure you have asked yourself, or if you've, you've had other people ask you, or you've had conversations about this question, this topic, and that is, what is the will of God for the Christian life? Has anybody ever asked that question? Everybody in a topic like that, what, what is your will for me, Lord? Only two people? Wow, you guys are, I don't even know why I need to preach this sermon then. <laughs> but growing up in church, you often hear this phrase, you can hear it in three different ways, right? We look at God's will of our life or God's will of planning everything and working all things together, right? We, we can talk about doing the will of God, which is following his commandments. And then oftentimes these will of God conversations really are about the direction in which we are supposed to live or the decisions that we are to make. Anybody ever feel like they've been in those conversations with those three topics or at least one of each? Okay, good. There are countless books, countless articles, countless messages like the one we're going to walk through today that talk about this topic. And so I want to, from a biblical lens, walk you through what the Bible has to say about the will of God and how it applies to the Christian life. Listen to this story. A man in Tupelo, Mississippi named Walter Houston described by his family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. 
He hung around the house and he prayed a lot, but he just never got around to that confirmation from God, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was all about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way. He was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. That was primary to him, says his wife. Friends said they liked Walter, though they seemed to see his talents that he wouldn't capitalize on. Walter had a number of skills that he never got around to using, says his lifelong friend Tim Burns. He worked very well with wood and had a storyteller side of him that was phenomenal. Take a risk, I would tell him. Try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. Now I want to be upfront with you. That is Christian satire from an article very similar to Babylon B. But when we take a look at that story, it may resonate with us. Because oftentimes we can find ourselves like this man, waiting around for the will of God. Have any of you been like him, become paralyzed with decisions that you have to make? You come to a fork in the road and you're like, man, what is God's will for my life to do? Any of you still feel like that? And if you are, it's okay. Because hopefully by the end of this morning, you are still asking the Lord, what is your will for my life? But you're responding differently. You're responding with decisions in your life differently than you would before. This morning I want to show you from the word of God that he does in fact have a plan for your life. There is a will that he will accomplish and that you can know it. You can approve of it. You can be pleased in it. However, I'm going to lay my cards on the table because I don't want you to get upset with me. I also want you to show you that God will most likely never reveal his will beforehand. And possibly... Even when you look back in the past of how things worked out, you might not even see God working in those decisions. So when it comes to making life choices about a job, where to live, how many kids to have, all these countless questions, you can have a freedom and confidence knowing that God is pleased with you. Knowing that you can choose what you want to do as long as God doesn't forbid it or if it's just straight up sinful. This sounds a bit odd, right? If you're walking through this logical process that you can know the will of God, but you're not gonna really know the will of God, I'm glad that you picked up on that, or at least hope you picked up on that, because I wanna walk through scripture to see how this tension fleshes itself out. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. That's where we're gonna be this morning, um, and then we are gonna kinda jump all over the place, but where we're going to have a foundation from is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. Let us go to him in prayer and ask him to bless this time. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus, that through him we are seen as righteous. We are seen as sons and daughters of God. And and from this truth, from this foundation, Lord, we can seek your will. We can seek to please you. We can seek to see your commands in Scripture and know that they are for our good. They are for, for our joy and our flourishing in this life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would know more and see more of you in this passage throughout our time here, and that that will grow our affections for you, that you may be made much of in our life. I pray that in this time we would learn about the wisdom of making decisions through the lens of what Scripture has to say, and Lord, that we would have more confidence knowing that as we live our life, because you are pleased with us, there is freedom. I pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul starts off and tells us that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is our spiritual worship. One of the reasons that Dwayne and I decided to preach on this topic throughout this series was because this tends to bring a lot of confusion. Right? We, we talked about the misconception of God's will, of seeing that he plans and controls all things according to his will. We see that when we talk about God's will, it has to do with his commandments for us to live. And then we oftentimes look at God's will as a roadmap or try to find a direction in which he is showing us where to go. However, here in Romans, we find Paul writing and concluding a grand thought through Romans 1 through 11. And if you get a chance to read it, I, I plead with you, do it. It's a beautiful piece talking about God's divine election, God's grafting the Gentiles into the family of God, the weight of sin, and his glories. That's why Paul ends Romans 11 with a hymn, a doxology of what God has done. All of this theology, all of this doctrine was written so that we then could set our minds on Christ, so that our lives could be transformed into holy and acceptable worshipers. This is why that glorious word, therefore, is therefore. And if any of you have studied English, you should be saying amen, right? Whenever we see that word, therefore, we should ask what question? Why is it? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So we see this word come up. And we have to ask that question. And we see that in this verse, these these commands, these things that Paul writes, he writes in such a way to show us that our life should be one of worship, which is what we're made for anyways. But now Paul is trying to draw us back through Romans 1 through 11 and concluding with therefore, he's drawing us back to, no, you need to renew your mind so that your life is a spiritual worship, one that is holy and acceptable to the Lord. As John Piper puts it, the aim of life is that God in Christ be displayed 
as infinitely valuable. And when your life displays this kind of worship, then God is made more valuable to you than anything else in this world. More valuable than money, more valuable than family, children, jobs, whatever it may be. And then when you live this life that Christ has made more valuable to you, other people around you start to see the hope that you have and the worthiness of the God you worship. So the first thing we see here in the life of a Christian and God's will for the life of a Christian is to be a spiritual worshiper, one who lives in such a way that is holy and acceptable to God. So how do we live a worshipful life? Verse 2 tells us. Here's what it says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we transform in order to be able to discern. This means that we as believers in Christ, as we are walking from the identity that we now have, are renewing our minds. This is an interesting paradox of the Christian life, right? Because we are set to renew our minds. That's what Paul calls us to do. But if we look in 2 Corinthians, Paul also tells us that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. So if we're renewing our minds, where should we renewing our minds from? And that's our identity. We are living our life in such a way, and this is the theological terms of justification and sanctification, We are living a life in such a way that we are putting God on display, putting to death sin from the identity we've received in Christ. This newness that we are seeking to do in renewing our mind comes from the new creation we have been given in him. And with this understanding, let us read verse two again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that... By testing, you may discern what is the will of God. So in renewing, we are now able to discern. And that word discern means that we are able to approve and to be pleased with the will of God. Do you catch that? That God wants you to not only know his will, but he wants you to be pleased with his will. And to do this, we have to come with a renewed mind. We have to come with a worshipful heart that is holy and acceptable to the Lord. And we can discern and we can approve and we can be pleased with God's will through wisdom from this new creation that we've been made, made into. So, if you're following this pattern, we should be asking the question then, if we're able to discern and if we're able to approve or if we're able to know and be pleased in God's will, what is it, right? That would be my question. It was my question this week. Okay, what, what is God's will? What does the Bible have to say about the will of God? You know, if you're asking that question, it's a great one, and I'm glad you did, because now we're gonna walk through what Scripture has to say. And Scripture shows us that there are two wills that we find, and I'll say this, they are on the same coin, right? They're, they're the same thing in which we see God's will for the Christian life. One is not greater than the other. They're for our flourishing, as 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy says, profitable for the growth of the Christian life. 
So there's two wills in which we see in Scripture, and then there's a third will we, we kind of try to interject. So I'm going to say these so you can write them down, because I know we have some type A people in here. That's the way I am as well. And I want you to know and see these. The first one is God's will of decree. The first one is God's will of decree. The second one is God's will of desire. Or we can also interchange desire with command. God's will of desire or command. And then the third one, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on, is God's will of direction. That's the one where we talk about, and we often land a lot with, where should I go? What should I do? Who should I marry? What car should I buy? What job should I work at? So we'll get to that one. But God's will of decree, God's will of desire, and God's will of direction. So first and foremost, God's will of decree. This refers to God as his sovereign, ordained, providential decisions he's made before the foundation of the earth. God's will of decree cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed. Nobody can mess it up. Nobody can come in and ruin it. All that God ordains comes to pass, and all that comes to pass, God has ordained. Now, before you think I'm crazy, let me show you where in Scripture we see this. Ephesians 1.11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works out everything, the big picture, the small details, and everything in between, according to the counsel of his sovereign will. Matthew 10, 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. God has planned our lives. He manages our lives. He doesn't just give us a few big ticket items that he's there for, and then he lets us do everything else. No, he knows the smallest sparrow and the grayest hair on your head, and neither fall to the ground unless the heavenly Father has willed it. Acts 4, 27 through 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against you a holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is a very hard topic, but guys, every mourn, every lamentation, every woe that we cry out has to look at the cross. And we see this in this passage. We see at the cross the problem of evil answered, not in some theoretical sense, but by pointing us to an all-powerful God who works all things for good. And as shocking as this may sound, the most heinous act of evil and injustice ever done to the Son of God took place according to God's gracious and merciful and predetermined will. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Our lives unfold, open, and close according to God's sovereign plan. As the Heidelberg Catechism writes, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them with leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Finally, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. God knows all things and sovereignly sees all things and he oversees every single detail. God's will of decree is absolute. It is from the foundation of the earth and it is the ultimate over all things and it cannot be overturned. So we see God's will of decree. And we have to ask the question, well, is this the will of God for my life? God's will of decree? Sure. But in this context, I'm going to show you that there's another will that God has for us when it talks about discerning how we are to live and being able to approve it. And that second is God's will of desire or God's will of command for his creatures. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to look at our life, put sin to death, and seek to bring God glory through all that we do. This is what Paul talks about in being a living sacrifice in spiritual worship. And so we see these examples starting in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world or any of the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whatever, whoever does the will of God abides forever. The will of God in this passage does not talk about God's design for things, but the way God commands us to live. Walking in the will of the Lord For John was not walking in worldliness. Doing the will of God for John meant we say no to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the the pride of possessions. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 tell us, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, with every good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The will of God as his will of desire means that we do what is pleasing in his sight. Matthew seven twenty one says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, we see the will of God in the New Testament talking about being obedient to God's commands and walking in his ways. And this time it comes from Christ himself. And finally, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words in the law. See, this verse is the closest that we come to seeing the will of decree and the will of desire side by side. God has secret things known to him, but has revealed things to obey to us. Sorry, but has revealed things for us to obey and to know. Now, I want to acknowledge this topic, right? This is a weighty, deep topic, Because we're talking about how God can decree all things to pass while simultaneously holding men responsible for their actions, right? That's deep, and I get it. 
And maybe one day we'll just preach on that specific topic. But the Bible clearly affirms both. I believe that there are theological categories in which we can help reconcile what we would call divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. But diving into that topic, I mean, we'd be here for a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days, right? And I've only got a certain amount of time. <laughs> but I do want to, it's true, I mean, I only have a lot amount of time. I do want to make clear, however, that God is sovereign. But hear this, God is not the author of sin. We are under his sovereignty, but we are not free from responsibilities for our actions. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this, these two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them furthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge, however, and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God where all faith does spring. Both sides of God's will his will of decree and his will of desire are found in Scripture. And before we move on and seek to answer the question, which will is Paul talking about in Romans 12? I want to show you why both of these, the will of decree and the will of desire, are profitable and good for us. These two realities which we find in Scripture provide us, as one pastor puts it, profound longings and needs that we have in moments of crisis and loss. And these two truths have been an anchor for my soul this past week as well as the past couple of years. We see in Scripture that God has the will of command. We see, in one of the, we see as one of the commandments in the ten, thou shalt not kill. We also see in Scripture that God has a sovereign will. We see in Acts 2, as Peter preaches at Pentecost, that Jesus delivered up, which means that he was put to death, he was killed, he was placed on the cross according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. Do you see that? Do you see that God ordained for the killing of Jesus? He ordained what he forbid. How do we live in that tension? You may not have thought about that before. This may be a new idea, a new concept. But I'm pretty sure that you've experienced it. Or at least you've watched somebody experience it. Let me give you an example. Suppose you or someone you know was abused and it was brought out some very sad fruit for many years. Some uncle, some father, and somebody is now trying to help you, trying to counsel you and work through these implications of this abuse. And they ask you, do you think that this was the will of God? How would you have answered that? How would you answer that now? What I've tried to do this morning is give you a biblical foundation that not only corresponds with the reality of Scripture, but also provides for the deep needs and longing of your soul. And what I mean by that is this. One need that we have in a moment like that is to believe that God hates what happened there. And when he's looking at the abuser, he is crying, don't do that. This is against my will. And he hates what he sees. And perfect justice will happen in judgment and hopefully 
correct justice happens here on earth. You need to believe that God is right there disapproving, hating that sin and that abuse. But secondly, you need to believe that God is sovereign. So sovereign that in that moment, he can and will turn everything for your glorious and everlasting good. But if you try to solve the problem of God's sovereignty at the moment of crisis and push him away, so far out of that moment, so far to the edges, you will be left with no God to help you deal with this. He will be useless to you. And if he can't govern that moment, he can't govern the rest of your life and do the miracles you need him to do. So you need two things. You need a God who disapproves of the ugliness of sin, and you need a God who ordains that all things come to pass, and he is so sovereign that he can take everything, everything, including that sin, including that cancer, including that miscarriage, including assault, that pain, that loss, and work it for good. But if you try to say there's no sense in which the sovereign God would will that, you will lose God for the rest of your life. So I think that these two truths correspond to a pretty profound need that we all have. But I want you to hear me on this. If you're not paying attention, that's okay, but I need you to at least pay attention to this. I don't know why God doesn't step into that pain. I don't know why God doesn't stop the abuse or the suffering because I believe that he has the power to. I don't know why God didn't heal my cancer at that moment that it was found or why he didn't stop it from coming. I don't know why God didn't stop my sister from being abused. And I don't know why God didn't tell Dwayne to keep driving past the guy that almost took his life while he was just stopping to help him in his car. I don't know. But what I do know in scripture, and what I need to know, and what you need to know in the moments of loss and pain, is that you have a God who can empathize with you as a high priest and hates Sin. He hates sin so much that he gave his son to die for it. And you have a God that in our moments of pain is totally sovereign and governing all things so that even the sin being done against you is folded into his purposes for your good. And you can shine like the sun someday even in spite of that loss. Now you may not have been abused in here. It may be the loss of a loved one. It may be a disease entering into your life. It may be some painful relational conflict in your marriage, in your family, with your children, but you're walking through something, or you will walk through something. And both of these realities of the will of God are needed in those times of longing and pain and loss. This is why these two truths are good and right and profitable for the Christian life. So now we can ask, what is the will of God for my life? What is Paul talking about that we can approve and be pleased with in verse two? Well, if God has a will of decree and all that ordained comes to pass and all that comes to pass God ordains, I I don't think that Paul's talking about the will of decree. What I do think about 
here is that he's talking about God's will of desire in which he commands us to live, in which he knows that will bring about our joy and our flourishing for his glory and our good. So what does that mean for us? What does the will of God through scripture in his commands, in his desires look like? Again, I'm glad you asked. We're gonna start with this. The first will that we find in scriptures that you be saved that you be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to know the knowledge and truth of Christ. God's will for your life, first and foremost, is to be saved. And if you're here today and you haven't placed your trust in him, I pray that you wouldn't harden your heart, but that you would hear the love of God in Christ, that he died on the cross for your transgressions, taking on God's wrath so that those who trust in him now receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ we have his righteousness imputed to us. And hear me, without salvation, this is why it's first and foremost that you be saved because without salvation, without repenting and embracing Christ as Lord, there is only one will for your life, and that is eternal hell. The question of what is God's will without Christ doesn't matter. And I plead with you, don't leave here this morning without coming to know the grace that God has extended in Christ. He desires all men to be saved. He's not willing that you should perish, but that you would come to repentance and salvation in him. The second will we see in scripture is that you, as a believer in Christ, would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It comes from Matthew 6, 24 through 35, where Jesus says, why, why are you anxious? Look to the lilies, look to the birds. Are they not clothed? Are they not fed? In all of Solomon's wonders, the lilies of the field can't match their splendor. So what is Jesus getting at? Jesus was getting at anxiety, which reveals what? Control, fear, loss. Anxiety is living out the future before it arrives. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So how are we to fight anxiousness? How are we to fight worry? With faith. Jesus says, and he gives us an example from creation. Look to the sparrows. Look to the lilies. Find comfort that God takes care of those. And if God is taking care of those, then the greater love that he has for his children, he's definitely going to take care of and give all that they need. That's why I love the great hymn. If his eye is on the sparrow, then what? I know he's watching me. The next will for the Christian life is to be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God. This is an easy one. Your sanctification for you to grow in holiness, for you to live out your identity from the new creation that we have, your righteousness. We put to death sin from that. We're not trying to do good for good's sake in order for God to love us. No, we are working from the good that God has given us in Christ. Next will is to be humble and live a quiet life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Live humble, live quiet, 
do your job. Let the world see the hope that you have by the work that you do. The next will is to bear fruit and know him better. Colossians 1.9. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you because that you pray for you, asking you, asking for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul, speaking to the church in Colossae, says that he wants them to know with spiritual wisdom and with spiritual understanding God's will. And Paul wants them to know God better, to bear fruit from that knowledge and from that love. The next one we see in Scripture is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to always be rejoicing in prayer and giving thanks. Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if we're supposed to understand what the will of the Lord is, then we continue down that passage and Paul writes this, do not get drunk. That's an easy one. Don't get drunk. Not saying don't drink. Don't get drunk. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be rejoicing. Address one another in psalm, hymn, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with the heart. There's that rejoicing, that gladness of heart that we are supposed to have. Giving thanks always and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what it looks like to be rejoicing, to be in prayer, to give thanks always. This is God's will for our life. Another will is to grow in Christ-likeness. Romans 8, 28, and 29. We know that those who love God, he will work all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of Christ. So God's will for our life is to be made into the image of Christ. God's will for our life is to suffer well. Romans 5, 1 through 5 tells us that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James 1 tells us to suffer well so that the world around us can see and know the hope that we have. And finally, God's will for the Christian life is to make disciples. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the will of God for the Christian life. And I've pulled, I think, seven or eight different passages to show how we are to live and what God commands us to do. But there's countless other examples of how God calls the Christian to walk in trusting him and believing in him. Now, I know you guys may say, well, isn't there a third will that you talked about? I want to know about that. I want to know about God's will of direction for my life because I've got a meeting Monday and I've got to figure out what to do. Well, if you follow along in this passage or you follow along in this sermon, you'll see that with all of the truth that we have just talked about, you are free. And what I mean by that is you are free to make decisions about where to live, if you should go back to school, who you should marry. Now, most of you guys are already married, so don't try to play that game. But for those who aren't, you're free to marry. What type of car you should drive, fill in the blank. You have the freedom, as long as it's not against God's desired will for the Christian life, he gives us freedom to make those choices. And we can have comfort when we make those choices that God's sovereign plan will not be thwarted by our decisions. 
we will not be out of the will of God when we choose to do something. Don't miss this truth from Romans 12, 1 and 2. When you live a life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, he is pleased with you. You have been justified in Christ and made righteous by his blood. God's pleased with you as he is in Christ. So go and do for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now before we close, I do want to give you some practical things on how to make wise decisions. James 1.5 says, He who lacks wisdom, let him ask. God will give generously without reproach. So, let's seek to have some wisdom in decisions that we make. And these are some things that I've practiced myself, um, and I hope that they will be helpful to you guys. First, when it comes to a decision, we should ask, have I searched the scriptures? Have I searched what the word of God has to say about what I might be doing? Because where the scripture is clear, we are called to be obedient. We just talked about that, God's will and desire for the Christian life. But where it's not clear, we have freedom. So we go to scripture first. Next, does this decision in my life make good sense? You see, the Bible isn't going to give us a roadmap of all life decisions, but it will give you principles to govern your life by. So you can ask questions like, does this make good sense? What will this, how will this impact my life? How will it impact the life of my family, my children? Can I be a good spouse or a good parent if I take this job? Will I be around? Here's one that I think we don't often think about and I think it should have more importance than it does. How will I be able to engage with my local church if I make this decision? God has placed a community, a body of believers around you to what? Grow you, edify you, help you be more like Christ. And if we're not filtering our decisions by asking, can I engage with my local church? Or will, if I move to a new job, will there be a solid Bible-believing church that I can get plugged into? If we're not asking that question, then we might need to reframe or relook at how we're making decisions. Finally, can I Sabbath well? Am I able to rest if I take this new job or if I move to this new place? Am I going to be able to rest the way God has intended for me to rest? If you answer these questions with no, then you may want to consider or reconsider this decision, whatever it may be. I also want to caveat, if there are decisions that you're looking at or you come to a fork in the road and there is no right, wrong answer, then neither of these decisions are going to take you out of the will of God. Neither of your decisions are going to get God upset at you to where he's not pleased with you anymore. More often when it comes to decisions in our life, we are more concerned with being in the will of God with non-moral, non-ethical decisions instead of the important character issues that we find and how God calls us to live. As Kevin DeYoung puts it in his book, Just Do Something, which I would recommend every single person in here read. He writes, we obsess over the things God has not mentioned and may never mention, while by contrast, we spend little time on all the things God has already revealed to us in the Bible. See, we should be spending more time in trying to figure out how to grow in Christ's likeness, how to act justly, how to love mercifully, and how to walk humbly 
with God where we are than whether or not we're supposed to be there. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't care about where you are or the decisions you're trying to make. He does. He absolutely cares. But he cares more about your character and you living out your life as holy and acceptable than he does if you're supposed to live in this neighborhood or that. Thirdly, have I sought the counsel of believers with this this decision? Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. The blessed man is described as one who doesn't take counsel from unwise people. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Have I sought counsel from other believers, men and women who will speak into my life and are not afraid to tell me I'm right or wrong in my thought process? Next, have I committed this decision to prayer? I heard this old cliche saying when I was in college, and I cannot ever forget it, and I hope you can't either after this morning. But it says, before calling someone on the phone, have you called on the Lord in prayer? Super cliche, but it has stuck with me so that anytime I call my dad or my friends about some wisdom for a decision, I'm reminded, have I taken this to the Lord? Have I prayed about it? Have I really taken the time to seek God's wisdom in this decision? I'll give you an example of my own life. Um, Right before I was asked to come up here and plant with Dwayne, I had taken some time to pray and fast about if this was the right decision, if this is God's will for my life or not. And I did that on my own because Dwayne and I had had some conversations about Indy. One conversation led to both of us showing a picture of what is now St. Joe's Brewery off of Mass Ave on my phone and on his computer without either of us knowing we had those two pictures. That comes from our love and affinity for brick buildings. But anyways, we were talking about that church that we had seen, right? And the cool thing was, I was like, hey, look at this picture. And he turns his computer around and goes, hey, look at this. It's the same thing. And so from that night, I asked the Lord, okay, am I supposed to go and plant with this guy? Because I feel like there's, there's something there that is drawing me to go with him. And so I went to the and went to the Lord in prayer. I fasted for a whole month and asked God to reveal to me, if this is not your will, if this is not right, then I'm not going to do it. But if there is no indication that it is right or wrong, I'm going to do it. And a month later, my pastor sat down with me at breakfast and was like, hey, I think you should start praying about going with Dwayne and Kelsey to Indianapolis. And I said, funny thing is, I've already been praying about it for a month, and so this is confirmation that I'm going to go. And so I I committed this decision to come up here in prayer. Now, could I have stayed in Florida and God still been blessed? Yes. Could he have worked in my life down there? Absolutely. But for me, this decision based on prayer was an easy one. And I had freedom to do so because I knew that God was ultimately in control and I knew that in my life walking with the Lord I could make decisions like this, and I wouldn't be out of his will. Finally, what is my ultimate motivation for doing this fill-in-the-blank? 
We can make decisions that on the outside look like was a great choice that is going to help our family, is going to help my life flourish, but internally, and this is truly important, God knows the heart. God knows what your ultimate motivation for doing this thing is or was. And so we have to check our motives. Are they wrong? Are they sinful? And if they are, we should, again, redirect our decision-making or even our decision process and ask, why am I doing this? So those are just some wisdom Practical applications for you that I have been able to use in my entire life. Specifically, I use the example of me coming up here. But when we walk in and we rest in our new creation and we look to the Lord and the process of renewing our minds from that new creation, when we're living out our life as holy and acceptable, we then can be begin to discern the will of God and see there are commands in which we are to live that bring about his glory and our joy and our flourishing. And because of those things are true, then we can have the freedom to make decisions and we can have the freedom to live a life wherever we want, as long as it's not sinful or against God's commands. So I want to close with this quote from Kevin DeYoung, and if the band will come up, we're going to finish out here this morning. He says, the only chains God wants us to wear are the chains of righteousness, not the chains of hopeless subjectivism, not the shackles of risk-free living, not the fetters of horoscope decision-making, but the chains befitting a bondservant of Christ. Die to self, live for Christ, and then do what you want and go where you want for the glory of God. God's will for your life is not very complicated. Obviously, living a Christ-like life is hard work. And what following Jesus entails is not clear in any and every situation. But as the overarching principle that we find in Scripture for the will of God is this. Be holy like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And guys, this is our aim. To put Christ on display in all that we do, including our decision making. Trying to live this will that God has for us, his will of commands in scripture. That's our aim. That's how we make Christ look good and how we make him our treasure. That's why you find in our vision for this church that we're called from scriptures to love God, love one another, and love others. This is what a gospel-centered disciple looks like, one that seeks to display Christ as infinitely valuable than all that we have because he is our treasure. And he has done all that we need in order to be right with God. He's done all that we need to even begin to ask the question, what is God's will for my life? By living this perfect life, he would die. Dying a death we deserved and taking on the wrath of God on our behalf, conquering sin and death and raising from the grave three days later. So that anybody who trusts in him will have everlasting life. This is the God we cherish. This is the God that we treasure. And this is a God we seek to worship and live for. And each week we get to celebrate what he's done for us. 
We celebrate in worship, we celebrate by hearing God's word, but we also celebrate in communion. The breaking of Christ's body and the pouring out of Christ's blood for us reminds us of what he did on the cross in taking on the cup of wrath of God for our sake. And for those who have placed their hope in him, we now can celebrate and celebrate what he's done. So in this time, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to close this out. And then after, we're going to have a time of communion, have a time of celebration of what Christ has done for us bringing us into the body as sons and daughters where God is now pleased with us. So if you have some time and you want to reflect, if you need to repent of sin, if there's relationships that you need to deal with, Scripture is very clear about all three of these things before you take communion. Go and do them. And then, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that we have freedom in Christ to make decisions and to live a life that is holy, pleasing, and acceptable to him by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great grace. Thank you that in Jesus you are pleased with us and that we now from this new creation can live a holy and acceptable life that is our spiritual worship. And Lord, in this spiritual worship, we then can begin to renew our mind by discerning the will of God, by following the commands that you give to your children so that our life can be joyful, can be full of hope, can be pleasing to you, that our lives can be flourishing here on earth that ultimately reflects who we are in you so that the world around us can see your love on display in our life. And so Lord, I pray that this time where we look through scriptures and, and seek to know your will, Lord, I, I pray that there is some clarity in here, some freedom for us to not try to bear the weight of being in and out of the will of God by the decisions that we make but that we see that we have freedom to live, freedom to go, freedom to do, as long as we are doing it by your power for your glory. So Lord, I pray that this would be a mark of our lives, freedom. As Galatians reminds us, it is in Christ that we have been set free. So Lord, I pray that we would press into that. I pray that that would be the banner in which we live under. Thank you for this grace. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church.